Good afternoon and welcome to the Gym Owners Fitness Business Podcast, proudly supported by MyZone, Oz Active and Life Fitness. Today I'm speaking to Catherine. Catherine is a Senior Associate at Velocity Legal. She practices exclusively in employment law. Catherine has significant experience advising employers and individuals across a variety of issues, including fair work disputes and complex dismissals. Catherine works with HR managers, business owners, and executives across industries from professional services to construction. Before becoming a lawyer, Catherine was engaged as a workplace relations advisor at the Professional Association. This on-the-ground experience has helped to develop Catherine's practical approach to resolving workplace problems. Today, we're talking about the fitness industry. We're talking about sham contracting superannuation who gets payable and we're also going to be talking about the fitness industry award restriction of trade and also what's changing possibly in 2023 closing loopholes bill 2023 proposes changes to the fair work act 2009 catherine is well versed in all of these things so welcome to the show catherine thank you so much mel it's a, it's wonderful to be here it's great to have you on. And I know, I know that these subjects are hot on the heels of a lot of fitness industry talk that's going on at the moment. So this is a great way to be educating some of our gym owners, our personal trainers, and of course, group fitness instructors. So let's get it all underway. So as I said, Catherine is from Velocity Legal, and uh, I've done quite a few podcasts with the team from Velocity, and they've also been very supportive sponsors at our Ignite Fitness Business events. So let's get stuck straight into it. Let's talk about contracting. Let's talk about contractor versus employee distinction in the fitness industry. Um, a lot of people don't understand the difference. And I've come across quite a few unusual examples when I've been uh, interviewing people for possible positions at the club. And sometimes I have a conversation with people and they say, look, I'm a, a contractor at Club ABC, but I wear their uniform, but I pay rent. And then the, the rest of the conversation is quite interesting. We won't go into that. So can we, or can I get you to explain the difference between contracting and employee? Absolutely, Mel. And look, there is, I guess the first thing to point out is there is no simple answer. These are really complex questions. And sometimes even lawyers like myself have to go into a lot of detail to understand what kind of relationship is before us. Um, but I think it always helps to go back to basics. And so, first of all, what's an employment relationship? Well, an employment relationship is a contract of service. And employment has its roots um, I guess a relationship of service, it comes from the master-servant relationship. An employee provides personal services for an employer and they get remuneration for that. And that's a very subordinate type of relationship. But a contracting arrangement is different. So an independent contractor is a person who carries out a trade or a business of their own. They're a personal trainer with their own brand, generating goodwill. Um, and they can provide their services with a much higher level of autonomy. And that distinction is super important because obviously employees have very different entitlements at law to contractors. Um, I'm sure everyone's familiar, but, you know, employees get entitlements such as wages, paid leave, 
superannuation, but there's also important distinctions between um, the tax consequences for the type of relationship, your access to unfair dismissal laws, whether as a gym owner you may be vicariously liable for the actions of employees but not your contractors. So, you know, getting the distinction right is really important. And it is, it's not a simple test. It, it's one that has a bit of a complexity. Um, it involves looking at the totality of the relationship and all the indicia that make up that relationship to determine if you have a contracting relationship or if it's not structured correctly, perhaps you actually fall into the category of an employment relationship. And happy to go into some of those factors if that's of interest, Mel. Yeah, it's really, it's quite interesting conversation because to me, a contractor is somebody that um, says, Mel, and I'm talking in lay terms, Mel, I want to rent a space in your club and I want to come each day and I want to train my clients. I want to wear my own uniform. I'll pay you the rent. I'll charge the client. The client pays me direct and I'm responsible for my tax and all of those other things that come with um, running a business. But then you hear the other side of it, which is somebody says, I'm, I'm a contractor, but I wear the club's T-shirt. And then they talk about, I've got a reduced rent. And the reason I've got the reduced rent is because I work four or five hours on the reception desk for free, or I write gym programs during the week and I don't get paid. Mm. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, I feel that this is a term that we often use, sham contracting. Mm. And I am very much against people working for free in clubs because, as we spoke about earlier, they're missing out on quite a lot of entitlements uh, that they should be getting paid. So what is, what is sham contracting and what are some of the risks when we allow this to happen in our workplace? Mm. No, you're absolutely right, Mel. Look, it's it's a really, um, it's a big issue. And you're absolutely right that you don't want to be, I guess, blurring the boundaries between a contracting relationship and an employment relationship, because then you get into sham contracting territory. And the circumstance you described earlier, where the person has, you know, control over their hours, they, they collect their own fees from members, um, maybe they can delegate out their work to others or subcontract out their duties, um, you know, they invoice the club. That's a very commercial type relationship and much more aligned with a contracting basis. Um, but where you start blurring those lines, where the person doesn't have control over how they do their work, over what uniform they're wearing, their hours are set, their duties are set, um, they're not getting paid in accordance with the commercial, you know, commercial arrangement that's set out. Well, that's when you head into sham contracting territory. So sham contracting is set out under the Fair Work Act, and it's basically where an employer or a future employer misrepresents that an employment relationship is an independent contracting arrangement. So employers cannot knowingly or recklessly make that misrepresentation. Um, I should note that there are some proposed legislative changes to that test, which would make it even easier to satisfy. Um, so that's set out in the Fair Work Act. It's also unlawful to dismiss or to threaten to dismiss an employee if they don't want to become an independent contractor. So you can't force people to change um, their type of relationship that they're engaged under. So you need to be really careful, I guess, is always seeking advice about what is the correct type of relationship that's before you. 
Because if you've got someone, you know, who is engaged under much more employment-like terms, there's a high degree of control over how you set their duties, what they're wearing, um, the terms of their working arrangements, then you're really heading into potentially that sham contracting territory and you need to be getting advice to avoid that risk. And if you receive advice and don't follow it, then you're really putting yourself um, at potential risk of really significant penalties under the Fair Work Act. Sham contracting carries penalties both for individuals but also for companies, and we're talking tens of thousands of dollars. Um, and those numbers for penalties are only going up if some new changes come into the legislation. So it's not something to take lightly. Um, sham contracting needs to be taken very seriously. Yeah, I feel in our industry that a lot of young people, green people, we call them green people because they're new to the industry, um, they've been taken uh, advantage of because they're extremely keen and excited to get into the fitness industry. Uh, as we know, it's portrayed as an exciting industry to be in. And, and it is a great industry to be in. But I feel a lot of, uh, there's not enough education perhaps in the RTOs on teaching them, you know, what is a contracting position that is legal, that is uh, where the people are going to do the right thing by you, and what is sham contracting on what to look out for, and also at the same time telling them where that they can get more resources and tools from. Um, is With your experience, is there a lot of sham contracting still happening in our industry, or do you feel it started to listen down a bit? Look, I think all different types of industries are struggling with these issues of the employee contractor distinction and getting it right. Um, it's not just an issue I would say it's regulated only to the fitness industry. I see it across all different industries. Um, but certainly I think there's um, certain characteristics of the fitness industry that means that some of these, um, I guess, working patterns have become quite normalised, that it is quite normal to engage um, personal trainers under a contracting basis. And that can be absolutely fine, providing it's set up and structured correctly and that the person really is conducting their own business. They have autonomy to do so. Um, they have the freedom to, you know, create goodwill and, and move around as they like to subcontract out if they need to. That's absolutely fine. But I think it's it's where those lines start blurring, and it sounds like that's something you're seeing in the industry, is where you head into, you know, real legal risk. And it only takes, you know, one disgruntled personal trainer to perhaps bring an unfair dismissal claim if, um, if their engagement ends, for an injury to happen and for the parties to determine, you know, where the liability of that, of that sits. Um, or for maybe a personal trainer to bring an underpayment claim because they feel that they should have been owed employment entitlements. Um, it, it doesn't take much for these issues to come to light and then you could be mopping up a very expensive problem. So let's talk about entitlements. Contractor superannuation, employee superannuation. Who gets what? Good question. And not one with a simple answer, I should say. A lot of industries um, struggle with this. So everyone knows that employees get superannuation. I think everyone's familiar with that. But what a lot of businesses aren't aware of is that the superannuation guarantee legislation also has something called an extended definition of who's an employee. And that kind of casts the net a bit wider. So under the superannuation guarantee legislation, if a person works under a contract that is wholly or principally for the labour of the person, then the person is considered an employee for superannuation purposes. But what that means is some contractors 
can be captured in that extended definition of an employee. And a lot of businesses really aren't aware of that. They just assume if they have, you know, contractor agreement or some kind of contracting model in place that they won't need to be paid um, superannuation. But I would strongly encourage any gyms that do engage personal trainers um, on a contracting basis and that they think that they're engaged wholly or principally for their labour to really get some advice if they haven't already, um, ideally from a lawyer or an accountant or a professional advisor, about whether they could be falling foul of superannuation legislation for those contractors um, and whether, in fact, they may need to be paying it. Yeah, because I have heard stories of where clubs will put people on as contractors just to avoid paying uh, superannuation. Uh, and I also have heard the story too, and the, of course you can elaborate on this, where if somebody turns up to work uh, every day at the same time, though they're a contractor, they can still be entitled to superannuation and some entitlements. How does that work? Absolutely. So it's two ways. It's either those contractors are not actually contractors at all and they fall into what we call the definition of an employee at law and that's because maybe they don't have any control over how they do their work, they can't delegate their work, they're not running their own business, they're wearing the uniform of the gym. So those people might in some cases actually be employees at law and the definition of a contractor is actually a sham and doesn't apply. But putting those people aside, there's this other category that may still fall into this extended definition because they're being um, wholly or principally engaged for their labour. Um, and that's that's really something that gyms need to consider very carefully and to seek advice about whether their contractors could be falling into that category. Um, now, there's some exceptions. For example, we had some recent case law that clarified that if you're contracting with a partnership or a company with an ACN, um, you will not fall within that extended definition of employee. But if you're contracting with an individual, with a personal trainer um, personally or through their ABN, and you think that they're wholly or principally engaged for their labour, then I would strongly recommend getting some advice and having a look at those superannuation arrangements. Yeah, it's very complex. Uh, you certainly mm. can give legal advice on that. I mean, it's almost to the point where if you decide to go into contracting territory that before you even do that that you pick up the phone and you ask some pretty important questions and and understand a lot more about it especially when you've got written agreements involved so what is a typical yes that's a good written agreement as opposed to that's a really bad one mm. Well, I guess because I'm a lawyer, the best written agreements are those, first of all, that are in writing and that are signed. Yeah. <laughs> because um, a contract can exist without a written agreement. Um, so, you know, contracts can be verbal, um, but that's not what your employment lawyer like me wants. <laughs> we want an agreement that nice and clearly sets out the terms of the relationship, whether that be on a contracting basis. And there's different ways of structuring that and doing different types of fees. So I'm not going to go into that. Or alternatively, is this an employment relationship, in which case you have a nice, clear employment contract. And if, for example, you were going with the contracting model, the types of things I'd be looking out for as an employment lawyer is that the PT or the contractor, you know, um, is operating their own business under their own brand. Uh, the contractor receives revenue from their clients. The contractor has control over how their services are provided. Maybe they decide what hours to work. Um, the contractor bears the risk for making a loss or a profit. 
Um, so those are the types of things I'd be looking for that reflect that much more commercial type arrangement. And on the flip side, you've got your employment contracts. So, you know, is it a casual contract? Is it a part-time contract? Is it a full-time contract? And does it, I guess, reflect the, the minimum conditions at least that that, that employee is entitled to under the award? So I just asked a little bit of clarification. We've got a contractor working in a club paying rent. He then hires a subcontractor to work under him because he can't train all the clients. He needs help. The subcontractor gets a, a written agreement. What are some of the things that the subcontractor should look out for that are absolute no-nos? So in a case that um, we've had recently, we have the contractor has employed subcontractors and that person's required to wear not their own business top, but the gym's business top, but they're required to be accountable for their own um, tax and doing their own, you know, bass at their end of the month and all of those types of things. And they're also required to pay a cut to the gym owner as well as the contractor. Now, though this is, I've had the discussion with these people, I have heard of this happening before. Very ugly, very hard to understand what's wrong there and what's right there. Mm, absolutely. And look, I probably can't comment on that specific arrangement in detail, but safe to say the very same considerations apply for that subcontractor of the PT as with the PT with the gym. You know, what type of arrangement is this? Is this very clearly a contracting commercial type arrangement where the person is operating their, under their own brand and bringing in their own revenue and, and whatnot? Or is that, um, is that PT actually exercising a high degree of control um, over the subcontract? Or is the gym exercising a high degree of control over the, the subcontractor? Um, you know, do they have control over how to set their own hours and do this and that? Or is this maybe much more of a relationship that aligns more closely with employment? It's the exact same considerations of you need to be very clear about what type of relationship this is um, and have that clearly documented. Because when you start, as you say, you know, blurring some of those lines is when, you know, you may have the risk that this contract could be a sham or is more closely aligned with employment. And at the very least, you want to be thinking about things like superannuation because that has its own legislative test, as I mentioned earlier. Um, and you need to be thinking about these things. Um, so, Catherine, tell me, what's the difference between casual employment, part-time employment, full-time employment? What, what's the difference there? What are the entitlements? Because a lot's changed in the last 18 months. It certainly has, and lots more is changing potentially next year. But I'll, I'll give the high-level overview. So um, permanent employees can be either part-time or full-time. So full-time employees typically work an average of 38 ordinary hours a week. They might be asked to work additional hours. Um, part-time employees obviously work less than 38 hours a week, but both of those categories of workers receive um, paid leave entitlements like annual leave, personal leave. They get notice of termination of employment. Um, they're eligible to access redundancy pay and things like that. So permanent employment gives, I guess, some level of security. Um, and the entitlements for that are set out under the relevant award. Casual employment is a bit different. It's a much more flexible arrangement of employment. 
Um, casuals get paid a 25% casual loading. Um, sometimes they can get even more on public holidays and working for Saturdays and Sundays. Um, casuals can elect to accept or reject work. So that's an important distinction. They work according to the needs of the gym, um, you know, and that could be as and when needed. It could be um, different hours every week, but they don't obviously have the same entitlements as a permanent employee. So they don't get that same paid leave. I should know that casuals do get um, paid family and domestic violence leave, um, 10 days of paid family and domestic violence leave if they need it. Um, that was a recent change to the law. Um, and I guess casuals can also, um, if they feel that their hours are regular, there's also mechanisms where they can request to convert to permanent employment. And the Fair Work Act sets out um, some systems called casual conversion, which allow for that. So quite different types of engagement. Um, and gyms may find that, you know, certain different types of employment arrangements will fit their business model better. Um, but it's best to understand, I guess, all the entitlements for those different types of employment um, and figure out what's going to work best for your business. So the domestic violence um, allowance that's come in, just mm. so we can um, clarify this for business owners, they get 10 days leave. Who pays for their 10 days leave? Is it the gym owner or is this a government-assisted scheme? No. So this is the employer. A bit similar in the way that you'd um, take sick leave and the business is the one that pays for that. So the gym owner would be the one paying for the 10 days paid family and domestic violence leave. There's some requirements that um, you can ask of the employee to access and make sure they're entitled to that leave. Um, but it's up to 10 days per 12 months. It doesn't accrue in the same way as um, sick leave does. Um, but if a person needs to access that leave to do something to escape family and domestic violence, then that's a new entitlement um, that all employees can access, including casuals, which is quite unusual because casuals typically don't get paid leave. So is it, uh, okay, so as a club owner, where do I go to get the resources to learn a little bit more about this so that if somebody should come to me and say I require time off because of this situation I'm in, do I just give them, say, yes, you've got 10 days off or can I ask them? And this sounds a little bit, um, it doesn't sound very nice, but uh, a checklist, is there a checklist that I can ask for? Or do I just assume that uh, what they're telling me is correct? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a really good question. I guess think of it in the same way as um, sick leave, for example. Employers are entitled to ask an employee for um, evidence like a medical certificate that they're entitled to paid sick leave. And there are very similar provisions for this new um, paid family and domestic violence leave. So uh, as a first step, I'd, I'd suggest at a minimum, if you have an employee that's seeking to access this entitlement, um, jump on the Fair Work Ombudsman's website. There you'll find out all the information you need, including what um, evidence and information you can ask for if you feel that's necessary. So that's always a good place to start. Fantastic. So my next question is restriction of trade. So we often, uh, as club owners, we, as we go to employ people and they say, look, I can't start working for you for another three months because I've just finished up at such and such a gym. Can can we do, even do this as an industry? Because for me, like I'm a, a club owner and I'm a group fitness instructor. Can I, you know, can this happen to me? Can someone say to me, you can't teach somewhere for X amount of months? 
Yeah, well, look, again, a complex question with no simple answer, but the long short of it is um, post-employment restraints, which is what we call these restraints of trade, can go no further than is reasonably necessary to protect the gym's legitimate business interests. So if you, for example, had a restraint of trade that stopped, um, you know, a former personal trainer working anywhere within the state of Victoria for a period of two years, and they couldn't, you know, perform their, you know, earn a living and, and perform their profession, then it's almost certainly um, highly likely that that restraint of trade is not going to be held to be enforceable. Now, there are, there are certain ways and in certain situations where a restraint of trade may be reasonable. Um, generally, the more limited, the better. Um, it's a highly complex area of restraints of trade. Um, many are poorly done and there's no way that they're going to be enforceable by a court, but we would always recommend getting advice so you can understand um, from a lawyer or a professional advisor, what does that restraint of trade mean? Is it likely to be enforceable? And as a gym owner, you know, do you need to be putting these in your contract? Or if you do feel it's necessary to put them in your contract, making sure that they're narrow enough um, to protect your legitimate business interests within a time period that might be reasonable in line with the case law um, so that you've got the best chance of ensuring that restraint of trade is enforceable. But um, I, I've certainly seen plenty of dodgy ones in my time, Mel. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've heard of quite a few different scenarios. And I mean, as you said, you know, restriction of trade and stopping somebody from being able to go to work, uh, it, it's a little bit harsh. And I know a lot of club owners will be saying, yeah, but Mel, they're, they're going to take their my members with them. Yeah. But the, re the reality is, if you have a good culture and community in your club, your whole club is not going to leave because some personal trainer has gone down the road five kilometres. You might lose a handful, but your business is bigger than that individual. And I think you just need to march on and not place those restriction um, trade issues, you know, on a, on a personal trainer. I know some clubs do pay for, and we're one of them, uh, pay for, say, an instructor's training in a certain program and they're ongoing education for 12 months and create an agreement where, you know, you only teach that program for ours and we pay for everything for 12 months. And we've had a lot of instructors that are more than happy to agree with that. So that's another area of the industry perhaps we can talk about uh, at a later date. Before I go into the last question about closing the loopholes, is there anything in our industry that you're seeing that is reoccurring that simply just could be non-happening if club owners were to put some simple procedures in place? Mm. I think, Mel, it's probably not so much um, issues that are particular to the industry as so much issues that are particular across all the types of industries I work in. And that is, I think, getting advice from the start when setting up, you know, contracting and employment relationships to make sure you're meeting your minimum obligations, to make sure your documents in place in a way that protect your business's interests, or if you're an individual personal trainer, to make sure that the documents you're signing up to are reasonable, um, you know, they set out your entitlements and your benefits in the way that they should, and they don't go further than necessary than the law would allow or start creating those blurred lines of contracting and personal, um, sorry, contracting and employment relationships. So get advice from the start, get your documents in order, um, review them now and again so that you know that you're keeping up with changes in the law and you'll be putting yourself in good stead to avoid legal claims and legal risk. 
It sounds fantastic. Now, please explain to me. I've got it written here. Closing loopholes bill 2023 proposed changes to the Fair Work Act. Tell me all about it. So just at a very high level, Mel, I just wanted to flag that there are some proposed changes to employment laws that may um, come into place next year. So the legislation has been drafted, but it's still being debated and settled. So things are not settled yet and it's not passed into law. But if it does, um, that law is likely to have changes for casual employment um, including the pathways for casual conversion, for who is a casual employee. Um, that legislation would um, potentially amend the definition of who is an employee at law as opposed to a contractor. Um, it's going to increase the penalties for things like sham contracting and breaches of the award. Um, it's also going to put in place very robust um, wage theft laws with, with very large penalties. And I should also mention for anyone in Victoria, we do already have wage theft laws with very significant penalties and potential jail time. So I guess just really flagging, keep an, keep an eye out for these changes. Um, you'll probably see some articles if you subscribe to any professional um professional newsletters or HR newsletters and things like that about the closing the loopholes bill or closing the loopholes legislation as it may become. So just, you know, keep reading about these changes, um, keep your eye on the ball um, and just remember that, you know, employment laws and industrial relations is a very dynamic space. So just because you got your documents in order one year, it doesn't mean that things are going to um, stay static. Things are, are constantly changing in this industry. So much to think about. <laughs> There's definitely a lot to think about. I just want to ask you really quickly, because I know that we do have to come to an end uh, on today's session. What is wage theft? Well, put simply, it's it's intentionally and dishonestly withholding wages. So it's a bit different from, you know, genuinely being confused or, or, or not knowing how to apply legal obligations. Um, so, of course, you know, uh, all employees that are covered by um, awards or the Fair Work Act are entitled to certain benefits. Um, and employees sometimes don't understand those benefits and they can be liable for civil penalties for that. But wage theft is effectively a criminal offence where an employer dishonestly and knowingly withholds wages um, and there's very significant fines and potential jail time for that in Victoria. And if these new changes come into effect across Australia, um, potentially that'll apply all over the country. Okay. Catherine, you have given our listeners so much to think about today, and I don't doubt there will be a few that would love to have a offline chat to you. So, Catherine, where's the best place for them to get in touch with you? So if they're very welcome to jump onto Velocity Legal's website, um, you'll find me on the our team page and all my contact details are there, Mel. That's fantastic. So today I spoke to Catherine from Velocity Legal. We spoke about restriction of trade, sham contracting, superannuation, and a whole lot more. You've heard that you can get in touch with Catherine via the Velocity Legal website, and I'll be dropping the details at the bottom of our podcast. And again, as I said earlier on in the show, today's podcast is proudly supported and sponsored by MyZone, Life Fitness, and Oz Active. Thank you, Catherine, for joining me on the show today. I greatly appreciate it, Mel. Good to talk with you. Thank you.